Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing, and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the first video in a new series which asks the question, which money is best? Over the next few videos, we're going to ask which form of money various distinguished guests believe is the best form. Over history, we've seen all sorts of different types of money from seashells to silver, but not all forms of money are created equal and not all of them stand the test of time. In this video, we're going to be looking at what will probably be most of uh, the viewers favorite form of money, which is gold. And I've brought on the regular guest, John Butler, to try and help me explain why gold is the best form of money. John, I suppose, though, we should start with the, the six characteristics of money that economists and academics like to focus on. Uh, absolutely. I mean, money serves uh, a role as a medium of exchange, but in order for it to be accepted as a medium of exchange, people must trust that it is also a reliable store of value. And then as a general rule, if you are keeping accounts, that will be your unit of account. Obviously, for ease of calculation purposes, it's helpful for people to all be using the same benchmark in the same way they're all using the same money. Uh, be it calculating profit and loss, be it calculating tax liabilities or you know, whatever it happens to be. There's, there's a fourth characteristic um, which is frequently overlooked, uh, which is that money must also provide for the final extinguishment of any debt associated with a given transaction. And that one's conveniently forgotten by much of the mainstream economics profession because, of course, we operate today on a debt-backed monetary system. And so that's one aspect which gold fundamentally corrects or returns, you could say, to the original foundational concept of money. Now, you mentioned six factors in total. The other ones, I believe you mean, Nick, are just subsets of the medium of exchange function. That is, that whatever the, it is needs to be fungible. That is, you can divide it up into ever smaller quantities to allow for small as well as large transactions. And finally, it also needs to be somewhat distinctive. It needs to be easy to identify so you know that it's not counterfeit, that it's the real deal. Yeah, there's all sorts of different distinctions. The, the, the list of six that I've got here in front of me is durability, doesn't wear down, portability can be moved, divisibility, so you can split it into infinitely small uh, or, or at least usably small pieces, uniformity, you mentioned that one, it's the same, a limited supply is an interesting one that I've got here, and acceptability, um, meaning that it's accepted broadly. So, you know, even on the question of, of what the characteristics of money should be, people don't necessarily agree. You've mentioned there some of the characteristics of gold and, and the problems that it solves. What I want to start with, though, is well, what I think is really the strongest argument for gold is that it emerged over the course of history as the preferred form. So can you quickly take us through, I guess, that sequence of, of gold and, and silver? Um, maybe we should include, well, maybe silver should be its own video. Uh, but anyway, of how gold became the dominant form of money over time. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and I was focusing more on the functions of money. You were focusing more on the specific properties of gold that allow it to best perform those functions. And indeed, it is that perception historically that gold and to a lesser extent silver did best perform those functions that uh, allowed them to serve as money. But this is where it gets interesting to me. Within a given system, 
a legal system, moral system, religious system, cultural system. Let's go back to basic civilizations where all of the above were kind of part of the same uh, mass or body of, of tradition and practice. What's interesting is that within a given system, you could well have a, a basic concept of altruism, debt, you know, sort of a, a, an altruistic debt. That is, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, and there is some rudimentary way of keeping track uh, about who owes who another back scratch, okay? And indeed, this is, you could argue, the basis for, say, a tally mark system where you're simply keeping a record of who has provided what to whom without actually even having a medium of exchange per se. Now, there's nothing wrong with a tally system at a very primitive level of civilization that is not particularly complicated, but when goods and services of all kinds start swirling around, being produced, consumed, traded, and so on and so forth, it becomes really, really burdensome and prone to error, much easier to have an actual circulating medium. Now, when you had various entities, cultural entities, trading with each other outside of a legal system, outside of a, of a shared religious, cultural, and even moral tradition, the only way to trade, and this I stress this point, was with gold and silver because they were seen as universal. You didn't have to trust your counterparty. You didn't have to trust their laws. You didn't have to trust their enforcement capabilities. Gold and silver always and everywhere outperform, you could say, other forms of money because they are the truly cross-cultural international ones and thus they have stood the test of time. To the silver enthusiasts listening, I promise I will do a video with a dogmatic believer in, in silver as the best form of money. For now, John, let's stick with gold. I think I've sort of answered our, our own question here by listing those six characteristics, uh, which gold fits very perfectly. Let's move on to the, the disadvantages of gold uh, as, as the, a form of money in society. What do you think the key ones are? Well, I think one of them actually, you could say, goes back to ancient times and helps to explain why indeed silver coexisted with gold, which is that gold is that much rarer and so for microtransactions in a, in a sort of primitive sense, gold was hugely impractical because even micrograms of gold, which of course are easily misplaced, lost or whatever, um, you know, would in theory be the correct amount to settle all kinds of basic transactions for day-to-day -day things. And so indeed, this is why you get, you know, copper, silver, whatever it is, co-circulating and gold being reserved more for international trade. Uh, big, big items or representations of great cultural or religious wealth, of course, in the form of art in many cases, right? And so gold, gold purposes almost border on the ceremonial above and beyond its use as money for a long time. Nowadays, though, that's really no longer a disadvantage. Indeed, people complain about the opposite problem, that gold is actually burdensome. You know, who wants to carry around bars of gold or even coins, which, uh, which can weigh a lot if you're talking about shopping around for, for big-ticket items? But the fact is, you know, money is a technology which evolves. There's no reason in principle, the same way today we have bank accounts that are basically electronic claims on money or credit cards or debit cards that are also representations of money. 
There's no reason why you could not overlay similar payments protocols uh, on top of a base layer of gold that simply sits idle in a vault somewhere, but the title to which transfers ownership uh, with each and every transaction, however small. I mentioned micrograms a moment ago. In theory, there's no limit. I mean, you could go down to individual atoms if you truly had uh, a big enough database to power that sort of ledger. And tomorrow I'll be interviewing someone who will uh, who actually has set up a system uh, that works based on those principles. Let's quickly mention one of the interesting downsides to me, which is that I'm a big fan of floating exchange rates. And when uh, a gold standard dominated international trade, obviously everyone's on a fixed exchange rate because everyone's pegged to gold. What do you think of that issue? I think the problem with that is kind of the game theory dynamic that plays out in a purely unbacked floating exchange rate regime. The fact is, as we know, what history demonstrates, governments have this tendency to inflate. They have this tendency to spend more than they take in. Politically, that can be expedient and outright popular, sometimes for sustained periods of time. That said, the economic consequences thereof can be equally severe and lead to sudden devaluations that seem to come out of the blue, but really aren't coming out of the blue. They've been you know, sort of developing in the background for a long time. That's the problem. If everybody wants to inflate versus everybody else to try and keep their currency competitive, to support economic growth at home uh, at the expense of others, look, you just get a general global inflation, which could get out of control uh, over time. And indeed, look around the world today. It's starting to look like a general global inflation, if you ask me. If you have a gold-based system, that general global inflation tendency is severely circumscribed and some countries might try to get away with it for brief periods of time, they'll end up failing. Other countries will refuse to accept their currency in trade. And so gold provides an anchor, not only at the national level, but at the international level, which prevents you from getting into this nefarious game theory dynamic of everyone trying to outcompete everyone else. It's a zero-sum game. It always fails in the long term. I think that's the most relevant angle for what we're really discussing here, which is a system that is is a form of money that's issued by the government, but it's backed by gold. And in that scenario, Gold acts as a constraint on governments on how much money they can issue uh, and on all this, the dodgy business we've seen with QE and bailouts and, and also just fiscal deficits and trade deficits. And it acts as a constraint on all of those things. And that's why when it comes to you know, having a civilization, it is such a good form of money. John, thanks very much for joining me and to everyone at home. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for watching.